All right, good evening. Um, we are continuing our study of the Baptist Catechism. Uh, we're using the white edition that we give away here at the church. If you don't have one, it's on the table as you enter. Please uh, get one on your way out this evening and study it and memorize it. Um, and this evening, we, we come to question number eight of our catechism. Actually, for the second time, uh, we did this last month, uh, question eight. We're going to do it again. And our question this evening is this. What is God? Now, last time we considered that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. And this evening, we're going to consider some more of his attributes. And we're going to consider, we're going to consider some more things that are true about God, and they are all infinite, eternal, and unchangeable as well. Now, before we get into this, I, I need to make a note here, and it may bring up more questions uh, than anything, because uh, I know it did me, but something to consider. I said I'm going to preach on some of the attributes of God. Now, th though we must distinguish the attributes of God because of our finite human minds, all of what we call God's attributes are really one in Him, because God is one. Because God is one. God is not made up of attributes or parts like you and me, where if you take away my power, I'm still me, right? God is not like that. God is not made up of parts like we are. Um, God, again, is one. In, in theology, we say God is simple, right? That, 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 is, that is, he is not complex. He is not made up of many things, but he is one. But we, as humans, lack adequate language to speak about God as he is in himself, and that's because we are finite and God is infinite. So all of our talk about God, while it can be true, is analogical. We talk about God by way of analogy, essentially. Um, all of the language that we use about God, while it can be true, it is not describing God in the absolute total fullness of who he is. And again, we lack that kind of language because God is infinite and incomprehensible and we are finite. So then, even though God is one and is not made up of parts, we must consider his attributes individually because of our human finitude and frailty. It's actually really hard to talk about God properly. <laughs> it's something that me and Stephen have been learning as we've been studying theology proper. But that's what we're going to be doing this evening, by God's grace. We're going to be considering his attributes individually because that's the best we can do with our minds. And the attributes that we will be considering are these. His wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. Now, as I said last time that we were in the catechism, the subject of God is beyond me. I wanted to kick this one back to Dave and make him do these sermons. It's beyond me. And to be completely honest with you, and I'm not just saying this to try to sound like a pious man, I mean this sincerely, it makes me very nervous to speak to you this evening about God. To try to answer the question, to try to preach and answer the question, what is God, is incredibly intimidating and humbling. Um, to my own shame and as a confession of my own ignorance, I want to be honest with you and tell you all that I have just started in the past year or so to really study and consider the doctrine of God. Right? Not that God is, but what do we mean when we're talking about God? What is his essence? What is, what is God like? 
And I've just recently in the last year begun to study that. So I'm still very much a novice in these things. And add to that the fact that God is incomprehensible and you begin to see why the subject of God makes a preacher nervous to preach. But I'm going to do my best this evening. And I simply just, I want to affirm what our catechism says about God and then flesh it out just a little from Scripture. And we will barely even begin to scratch the surface of our incomprehensibly great God. And like last time, I believe that we will be knocked to the ground again in awe of who God is and that we'll be led to worship him because he is worthy simply because of who he is. And one more thing before we begin, just a heads up, I'll be reading from a lot of different places in scripture. I do that often whenever I preach. So if I tell you that I'm going to do it, it's going to be a lot. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to wait for you to follow me there or we will be here all night. So if anyone would like a copy of all my scripture references or a copy of this sermon manuscript, just let me know and I'll make that available to you. But with that said, I'm going to pray for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. And then we're going to consider our question this evening. So let's pray. Holy God, you are beyond us. You are greater than our greatest words can tell. You are simply God. And we stand in awe of you because you are God. And in our weakness, we ask that you would help us to understand more of who you are. We humbly admit that, that we know that we will never fathom your infinite depths, but we also know that we can understand you more than we currently do. And so we ask that you would reveal yourself to us in your word and by your Holy Spirit this evening. Teach us and knock us to the ground in awe of who you are. Give us a glimpse of your glory this evening and grant that we would worship you more sincerely and deeply because of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. A question for this evening. I ask that you would read the answer with me. Is it going to be air? It is. It's up there. All right. Read the answer with me. Question. What is God? Answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Let's do that again. Question. What is God? Answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All right. I'm just going to go through all of these attributes. That's what we're going to do now. First, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. Now, what are we talking about when we say wisdom? I think there's two parts to wisdom. First, we're talking about God's knowledge of all things. And second, we're talking about God's proper use of his knowledge of all things to direct the world to his holy purposes. Why do I say that? Why do I say it's two parts? Well, you must have knowledge in order to have wisdom. You have to know things in order to know how to properly apply what you know, right? And you must know how to properly apply it in order to be wise. So then once again, when we talk about God's wisdom, we are talking about his omniscience, that is his knowledge of all things, and also his unquestionably good use of that knowledge. Now, with regard to God's knowledge of all things, we turn to Job 21, 22. There we read, Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? This one makes you giggle a little bit. It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is a flat no. Will anyone teach God knowledge? No. 
Nobody will teach God knowledge. Why is that? Because he doesn't need a teacher. Like, I know this is very simple stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't need a teacher. Why? Because he does not need a lesson in anything. God has all knowledge in himself. Knowledge belongs to him. For him to have a teacher would mean that his knowledge of anything is dependent upon another. But the word of God is very clear that God is not dependent upon anything or anyone. He does not depend upon any of the works of his hands for anything. So then, he does not depend upon anything for knowledge. He has no teacher. All knowledge is his. Our God does not learn. He just knows all. And I love the fact, this one made me laugh a little bit as I was writing this yesterday. Job 21:22 says that he judges those who are on high. It's mocking the idea that God would have a teacher since God is the one who judges the judges of the earth. Right? And who are the judges of the earth? Kings, teachers, civil magistrates, people in high authority, judges. Who are those people? Those people are the ones who are supposed to know everything. Right? That you're supposed to be wise yourself if you're going to occupy the high positions in this world. Or at least ideally, we don't see a whole lot of that sometimes in our day. But ideally, that's what it's supposed to be like. And what's so so the the joke here, so to speak, is does God have a teacher? No. Why? Because he judges the judges. He judges the wise. Why? Because he's more knowledgeable than they are. Because he's wiser than the wisest of men. Another text to consider is Romans eleven thirty four. This is very famous. A lot of you know this. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given counsel to the Lord? Right? Who has ever taught God is what Paul is saying. Who has ever, I love this, who has ever given God advice? Who's ever been his counsel? That's what you do when you seek counsel. You're seeking advice from somebody. Paul says, who has ever, who has God ever asked, hey, what do you think about this? Just curious your thoughts on this. Could you some help thinking through this? That has never happened because God has never asked for advice ever because he has no need of it. He is wise. Again, or rather, he doesn't just know all things. He is also wise. He perfectly knows what to do with his knowledge. A text for you to consider for that is Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. There we read, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Solomon tells us here that God gives wisdom. What does that mean then? Wisdom is his. If a man, according to Solomon, if a man has any wisdom, he received it from God. This means then that all wisdom proceeds from God. That's why Solomon says there in Proverbs 2, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Wisdom proceeds from him. It's his to give because he has all of it. Brothers and sisters, our God always knows what to do. That should encourage you, by the way. He always knows what to do. What he does, his actions are unquestionably wise. Paul in Romans 11 says that the actions of God and his counsel and his wisdom is unsearchable and inscrutable. And the apostle says that because God is infinitely wise and he is eternally wise. He has always been this wise. He has always been infinitely wise. It is who he is and he is unchangeably wise he will never grow in knowledge or wisdom. He will never know any more or any less. And he will never be in any need of advice from any of his creatures, for he knows perfectly what to do. 
Now marvel at this. All of these points, I plan on fleshing them out and then giving you something to, to chew on that might lead you to worship, I hope. So Christian, in light of these things, marvel at this. God has never said, I hadn't thought of that. Or I didn't know that. I hadn't considered that. I wish I had known that. I wish I had done differently. All of those things are foreign to him because he is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably wise. C consider this. This, this. this thought floored me this past month while I was studying for this. God has never said, I wonder. I wonder. You know how often me and you say that? God has never, ever said, I wonder. How different is he from his ignorant and unwise creatures? He is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably wise. Second, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. This one gets me pretty excited. When we talk about God's power, we're talking about his ability to do all his holy will, as the children's catechism says. God can do all his holy will. His ability to do everything that he desires as he sees fit. Consider with me Psalm 62, 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. Hear that again. Power belongs to God. The ability to do belongs to him. That's what power is, by the way. The power is defined uh, as the ability to act and produce an effect. That belongs to God. The ability to act and produce an effect. Power, as, and again, I, I don't know if, I'm, if, I, if, if I have right words for this. Like power as a concept is his. All power is his. Like that's wild to me. And that then means that if anyone has power, whether a great amount, and I don't mean political power, I mean the ability to do, right? Like your, your ability to move, your ability to breathe, like your being. If anyone has power at all, that means they received it from God because power belongs to him. If anyone has the ability to do exist or do anything whatsoever, it's because God gave it to them. And that's actually why the apostle Paul says in Acts 17, 28, in him, we live and move and have our being. Why? Because we get our being and our power from him. Because he has all of it in himself. And that means that God is all-powerful. Or as we often say, he is omnipotent. There is nothing he desires to do that he cannot do. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too... What a question that God asks his people... Is anything too hard for me? If you say yes, you're a blasphemer. The answer is no, nothing is too hard for him. There is not one single thing that our Lord cannot do that he desires to do. He can do all his holy will. And he cannot be overpowered by another. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants, I love this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The entire creation is accounted as nothing before our God. And he does all that he pleases. And I love it. Not only can no one stop him, no one can even actually truly question him. 
He's that powerful. No one can even say, what have you done? What is that Isaiah says? All the nations of the earth are as dust on the scale before him. He has all power. And his power cannot be exhausted. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. It's metaphorical language. God's hand is never shortened. That means God never runs out of power. He's always able to do exactly what he wants to do. He always has the ability to do. Our God is infinite in power. He is eternal in power. And he is immutable in his power. That's why he calls himself God Almighty. You ever wondered why we say that? God Almighty. He has all might. That's what we're saying. So Christian, consider this and be amazed. I love this. God has never tried. Tried to do what? Anything. He has never tried. Why do I say that? Because to try implies the possibility of failure. And to fail means that you lacked the ability to do. But power belongs to the Lord. God has never made an attempt to do anything. He just does what he wills. He's never failed to do exactly what he wanted to do. And he's never been tired. Consider this. Bear with me. This is a bit uh, kind of odd way to, uh, of putting things, but it's good if you'll follow with me. He's never been tired and he has never tried. For God to do takes no effort. He is pure power. In fact, for him to will something is to do it. Because he is almighty. God's will is identical to his action. Because he has all power in himself. He puts forth no effort to do anything. He wills that it is done and it is so. That's amazing. There's no one like this. Again, a thought for you, a sentence that God has never said. I wish I could. Never. We are weak. He is not like us. He is power itself third attribute this evening God is infinite eternal and unchangeable in his holiness in his holiness I believe there are two things that we're talking about when we talk about the holiness of God the first one is going to sound very much like R.C. Sproul because I'm stealing it from him we're talking about the otherness of God that he is other or his transcendence his uniqueness as God and the second thing we're talking about is his hatred of sin and being separate from sin and sinners unless an atonement is present. The holiness of God. First, let's consider his otherness. In Isaiah 6.3, we read about how the angels fly around the throne of God, covering their faces and bodies so as not to look upon God in the fullness of his glory. And they all cry out, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You ever wondered why holy is repeated three times there? It's the Hebrew way to express the superlative. In other words, God is the most holy, the holiest, the, the most high, the most unique. There are none like him, is what the angels are declaring day and night. He is holy. Hear me, he does not have holiness, he is holy. He is holiness. This means that God is utterly distinct from his creation. He is other 
from what he has made. Some scripture that talks about this. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the, declares the Lord. What's he saying? My ways are higher than yours. They are beyond you. My ways are not like your ways. Numbers 23, 19 declares, very plainly, God is not man. What does that mean? He's not like us. He's different from us. He is categorically different from man. Another passage, Pastor Steve pointed this out to me last week. In Acts 14, we read of how the pagans tried to worship Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 15, they told the pagans this. The pagans are all trying to bow down and worship Barnabas and Paul. And then they say this. We are also men of like nature with you. What does that mean? We don't share the same nature as God. We don't, men do not share the same nature as God. He is of a wholly different nature than his creation. In Psalm 50, 21, God rebukes his people and says, You thought that I was one like yourself. Again, God declares, I am not like you. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Now listen, we can approach him in one regard through Jesus Christ and his atoning work and praise God for that. He is our father. But in his godness, in his essence, we cannot approach him. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's holy. He's so high above us, we cannot approach him in his raw godness. In Exodus 3.14, God declares very famously, I am who I am. Again, he's holy. He simply is who he is in and of himself. His essence is one undivided essence, unlike ours. He is dependent upon none, unlike us. He is pure being. He is unchanging. He simply is. And that's why he says, my name is I am. I am. Brothers and sisters, God is other. God is holy. And that's why he says in one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? God says, who are you going to compare me to? Who are you going to compare me to? He has no equal. He, there is no one for one with God. He has no one for us to truly in every regard compare him to. And it is therefore an insult to his majesty to compare him without a caveat to anyone or anything. Our God is above all that he has made in every regard. He is, hear me, this is, this is big. Me and Stephen have been studying this. I, I want to pass this on to you. God is not simply a bigger, more powerful version of us. No, no, he's not. He's not just a bigger human with more power and more wisdom. No, he is unlike us. He is holy, holy, holy. There's his otherness. And the second aspect of his holiness, he is pure. He is the true hater of sin and has no fellowship with sin. I'll read one text to you for this because I think most of us understand this well. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Brothers and sisters, God is pure and God hates sin. It is repulsive to him. It is defilement. It is the opposite of holiness. 
he will have no fellowship with it whatsoever. And he will have no fellowship with sinful men apart from an atonement. Consider all the texts of Scripture that talk about the necessity of sacrifice, the necessity of being made clean in some regard in order to approach God, the necessity of an atonement or propitiation for sin. God's demand for a sacrifice for sin in order to forgive and have restored fellowship with sinners actually proves his holiness. Have you ever considered that? The fact that God demands sacrifice and demands sinners to be made clean before you will have fellowship with them proves that he is holy and that he will not have fellowship with sin or sinners apart from an atonement. Again, the fact that God required our Lord Jesus to die on a cross in our place in order to make us clean and pure in his sight is proof of what the angels sing around his throne. God is holy, holy, holy. And again, as I'll say with all of the attributes we're going through, God is infinite in his holiness. It knows no bounds. I don't know how to explain that to you. I don't. I'm just going to confess that. His holiness is infinite. He is perfectly pure and innocent and spotless and other. And he has always been this way and he will always be this way. And he will never change his holy nature. He will never be like us ever. Ever. Marvel at that. We cannot imagine what it is like to be unlike anything else and to have no comparison. I can compare everyone in this room to somebody else. In this room, actually. <laughs> right? And, and it be a pretty spot-on comparison for the most part. Imagine what it would be like to say, there is literally nothing like me. That's God. That's God. A lot of people lie to themselves and think that they're a special snowflake. It's not true. God is actually the only being in the universe that can say, no, I actually am completely unique. Marvel at that. And marvel at this. God is intrinsically pure. Intrinsically pure. We are pure through the blood of Christ. We hate sin because God has given us new hearts. But God, in and of himself, eternally, immutably, and infinitely, is pure and hates all sin. Marvel at these things. He is holy. Fourth attribute. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. In his justice. God's justice, what are we talking about? We're talking about God always perfectly deals with his creatures. That is this. God is righteous. God's righteousness that God never does wrong. Specifically, we're talking about how God always deals perfectly with his creatures with regard to their relationship to his moral law. That is the justice of God. Now, all throughout the scripture, God tells us that he is just in one way or another. Psalm 89.14 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. He is seated in righteousness and justice is what the psalmist is saying. And a great question for you, does God ever leave his throne? No. He is always on his throne. He has always been on his throne. He will never abdicate his throne. What does that mean? He is constant in his righteousness and justice. It never goes anywhere. Why? Because it's who he is. Another text, Psalm 145, 17 tells us, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Hear that. 
hear that, please. You, we need to hear this a lot because there are a lot of people who, whenever they go through things, they think that God is not dealing with them rightly, that God's being like unfair to them. Please hear this. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, all of them. He never misjudges anyone. He never makes a bad call, ever. He never mistreats anyone. He always does what is right. All of his ways are righteous. All of them. Even if you disagree with them, you're the one with the problem. His ways are righteous. But considering his justice and the application of this righteousness, we need to consider that he is the judge of all mankind. Romans 12, 19 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He takes vengeance on the wicked. He ensures that justice is always done. Isn't that what it means? For God to take vengeance on the wicked, he's saying, I will do justice. Know this, in some way, in the end, according to his righteous will, God will always have justice. And as we have seen, he has the power to execute judgment. He is all-powerful. And as the creator, he has the right to execute judgment. And as the all-wise God, his judgments are always right and proper. All of creation will render an account to God. And his judgments on his creation are always perfectly righteous and just. Again, this thought keeps coming back to me. God will never and has never misjudged or made a bad call because he is justice itself. Now, a quick note here, and it's worth mentioning. God does not give justice to all. Am I contradicting what I said? Nope. Christian, you should be very glad that God does not give justice to all, or you would be going to hell. God does not give justice to all. He gives mercy to many through Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. So then, not all receive justice from God. But... To give mercy to some and not all is not an injustice. It is not unjust of him. To give mercy is his prerogative. And he does not owe any men mercy. Rather, he owes, so to speak, all men justice. But catch this. Even when he, he gives no mercy to the wicked, he still does not overjudge or punish them too harshly. He just gives them what they deserve. He gives them damnation. But he never does injustice to anyone. Furthermore, the fact that his mercy toward the elect came at the cost of the Son of God on a cross shows that God never sets aside his justice in order to show mercy. He always does justice. Let's flesh that out for a minute. Let me, let me preach the gospel to you this evening. Exodus 34, 7 says this, God is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by but who will by no means clear the guilty. You ever read that and said, How? He will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He won't pass by their sin, he won't wink at it, he won't say that they're not guilty, but he will forgive sin. What does that mean then? It means that an atonement must be made for the guilty. That's what that means. In other words, somebody has to pay for the sins of the wicked in order for God to forgive them and yet not compromise his justice. 
Justice must be served. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. He demands this. And this is why the atoning work of Christ is necessary for us to be forgiven. As Paul says in Romans 3, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who believes upon Christ. Why does he say that? Well, God wants to be the justifier, the forgiver of sinners, the one who declares them righteous in his sight. But he must not compromise his justice or he will be compromising who he is. And this is why God plans redemption through Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice. What am I getting at? Justice is still done. Justice is still done. God forgives sinners, but not at the expense of justice. And that's why we need Christ. And praise God, this is why John can tell us in 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is he just to do it? Because someone paid for it. It just wasn't us. It was Christ. So marvel at this. God's judgments and dealings with his creation are absolutely above question. We need to hear this. He may not always do what we want, but there is no unrighteousness in God. Unlike us, he has never mistreated anyone. Can you say that? That you've been righteous in all your dealings with men? Of course you can't. But he is righteous in all that he does. And marvel that even his forgiveness and mercy does not compromise his justice. Unlike us, he has never winked at sin or compromised righteousness. He has never done an injustice and he never will. Fifth attribute. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. I found this one to be kind of tough. Uh, and I thank God for good commentaries. Goodness. God's goodness is his benevolence and general care of all that he's made. How helpful is that? That is a helpful definition. God's goodness is his benevolence and general care of all that he's made. One of the most often repeated statements in scripture is that God is good. Psalm 34, 8 famously tells us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And again, Psalm 145, 9 says, The Lord is good to all. Let me say that again. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. He is simply good, and he is good to all. He is kind, and he cares for his creation. He governs everything with his kind and good providence. He made and sustains his creation, and he did not have to make his creation, did he? The fact that he created displays his goodness. That he gave being when he did not have to displays his goodness. And furthermore, he sustains his creation. That shows his goodness to us. He gives us all the things that we need. And to be honest, I think everyone in the world or nearly everyone in the world can say this. He gives us many kindnesses that we do not need. Surely this is the goodness of God. Consider... I was talking to Steve about this before church started. Consider that the transcendent God, the holy God we just talked about, consider the fact that he even cares about you at all. Is that not an expression of his goodness? Does that not reveal to you that he's good? If I was that much higher than everyone else, I mean, granted, I'm a sinner, but I, I can't tell you that I would care about anyone that's that far beneath me. 
but he cares for all the works of his hands. Surely that is a sign of his goodness, that he would take notice of us at all. And consider James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Hear me. If it is good, it is from God. Just remember that. Tuck that one away. If it is good, it is from God. If there is any joy to be had in it whatsoever, it is from God. Now, I won't lie. Sinners often abuse the good gifts of God. But even in their abuse, the fact that there is any enjoyment whatsoever in the gift itself shows that God is good. Every good thing comes from the all-good God down to us because he is good and he delights in doing good for his creation. And consider that God is even good to sinners. God is not just good to his elect. Matthew 5.45, Jesus tells us, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Even those who do not fear him, love him, respect him, or give him any thought whatsoever, still receive goodness and kindness from his holy hands. Surely this is infinite goodness that staggers our imagination. And as I've already mentioned, he is good to some in a special way. He sovereignly chooses to save his elect. This means that he has chosen to be especially good to some. Consider how good and benevolent God must be to plan and execute redemption for sinners. It is nothing but the pure goodness of God that he decided to save any instead of damning all. Is that not an expression of his benevolence toward his creatures? Instead of just damning the entire human race, he says, I'm going to save some a many, a great multitude that no man could number, I'm going to save that many? Is this not the benevolence of God? Again, I, I, I want to highlight this. His glory was not diminished by our sin. He didn't need to save us in order to, to, to receive glory. No, we can't diminish His glory. When we glorify God, we're not giving Him any more than He already has. All that we're doing is we're ascribing glory. We're just declaring what is already true of Him. I say that to say he did not save us because, well, if I don't save some of them, I won't have any glory. No, like he didn't need to do any of it. Surely then the salvation of his people displays his goodness. Marvel at these things, Christian. He is unceasingly good and good beyond our imagination. Even to sinners, that is, even to us. Sixth and finally, I know this sermon's been longer than others, but bear with me. I had to do six attributes. Give me a break. <laughs> Sixth, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. What is the truth of God? What does it mean that God is the truth? It means that he always does exactly what he said he would do. And that he can do no other than what he promised to do. In other words, God being the truth means that God is faithful. Consider 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. Peter says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Some of you are probably wondering, what does that passage about the scriptures have to do with, with, the tr with God being the truth? Well, Peter tells us that the word of God will never fail. Now, how, how does he know that? Well, it won't fail because God will make sure that all he has promised will come to pass. Why? Because he is the truth. 
God will do all that he has said to believe that the scriptures will come to pass and that the word of God will not fail is to say you believe that God will not fail to do what he has said. Our God is no liar and he is never mistaken. If he has said, he will do. Hebrews 10.23 is another text to consider. There we read the apostle says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is true. God is faithful. God does not know how to be any, anything other than that. When he promises, he does it. When he threatens, he does it if the condition is met. His word will never fail because he will never fail. Please hear me. Let me, let me, well, let's extol the Lord here with this. He is truth. He will not forget to keep his word for he is wisdom. He will not be unable to keep his word, for he is power. He will not lie to you, for he is holy. He will not back down from his threats, for he is just. He will not fail to keep his promises, for he is good. Brothers and sisters, our God is the truth. And that means that he is trustworthy to the fullest. He will never deceive you, and he will never let you down. Marvel at this. It is literally not within God to not be able to keep his word. We can't say that about ourselves, can we? Maybe sometimes you don't keep your word because, well, you meant to, but you just didn't have the power to do it. Or maybe you're a liar. But know this, with our God, it, it is not within him to be unable to keep his word. Our God is truth. Brothers and sisters, as we end our time together in the word this evening, hear me. Worship this God. Some people say, what's the practical application to studying this stuff? Contemplating God is an end in and of itself. Worship this God. He is just, he's simply worthy. So stand in awe of him. Contemplate him in all his glory as best as you can, recognizing that your best thought about God still isn't good enough because he's transcendent and infinitely better than our minds can fathom. And then worship him for who he is. And know this as well. I want to encourage you before we leave. Worship him and be glad as well because this God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that he is, has made you his child by grace. He is for you. As unbelievable as that may sound, he is for you. He actually cares about you. He actually loves you. And he has willingly obligated himself to you in covenant through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. To know that this God, and really it's not that he's in your corner, it's you're in his but to know that this God is your God should comfort you in every circumstance of your life. Christian, I say again, this God is your God, and there are none like him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your glory, it, it's just beyond us. And God, if it wasn't beyond us, if who you are was not beyond us, you would not be worth our worship. Because you would be a creature like us. But God, you are so high above us that we cannot even comprehend you in and of yourself, in your essence. 
So, Lord, I pray that you would take all the things that we've learned and thought about this evening and that you would hide them in our hearts. That you would seal them to us that we might think high thoughts about you. And that we might worship you properly because of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.